Hi, Kiran. Uh, welcome to Network Capital. So happy to see you after a couple of years. And, That's uh, right. Yeah, you've done incredibly well uh, in this pandemic and, of course, before that. But uh, this podcast is about career principles, what drives people, what motivates them. And uh, I'd love to begin with uh, what you're doing right now and uh, how best do you describe yourself today? Uh, I love this question. Uh, I would start with how I describe myself. I would say that I am kind and loving and positive and thoughtful. And these are, you know, values that I think growing up, we don't really affirm enough in kids. But as I kind of move through life, I find enormous amounts of emotional intelligence in uh, being able to be just kind and generous and open. And I've been really doubling down on cultivating that within myself so that I can show up that way for other people. And in terms of what I'm doing, you know, I'm a musician. A lot of my activism work comes through in the lyrics and in the kind of speaking experience around my live show. Um, specifically, I'm very passionate about gender liberation. And I'm also really passionate about uh, abolishing the prison system, uh, not only in the United States, but, but beyond. So that's the, that's the work that I do, and that's how I would describe myself. Awesome. Um, and you know, how did you get here? What were some of the important inflection points in your life uh, that made you passionate about the causes that you just described? I think as a kid, you know, children are very intuitive. It's, we are not at that point in life where society has kind of like taught us to shut down our own intuition and pay attention to external sources. And as a kid, I just so naturally gravitated towards music and dance and art and expression, and also just really found myself grappling a lot with gender dynamics and just looking at gender in the media, whether it was pop culture and music videos, or it was, um, you know, the Power Rangers or whatever was the kids television that was happening at the time in the 90s when I was growing up in New York City. And, you know, to this day, those have been my passions. And I think I go back a lot to my own childhood because there's a sort, there's a kind of honesty and purity about what it is that we're naturally drawn to as kids because there's no alternative uh, motive. It's just the truth of, 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 our, of our freedom and self-expression. And so I really say just looking at that has been my biggest indicator. Um, and then, you know, different moments in my life, I grew up in New York City. I had two fairly traditional Indian parents. You know, academics were always really big for my brother and sister and I, and also a sense of giving back. I grew up in Eleanor Roosevelt's old townhouse in the center of New York City. And so we had a lot of, you know, various world leaders coming through our home and speaking. Even when, you know, we were kids, we were expected to do our homework and come down and meet world leaders and, and connect with them. And I think that was a, a big inflection point, absolutely, because we saw ourselves as people who, you know, should be thinking globally, should be thinking about others, should be thinking about how whatever work that is that we're going to choose to do should have a positive impact. So I'll pause there, but I definitely think childhood is how I would answer your question. Yeah, it's so important, right? The early years, the early influences. And, um, and I love the fact how you, those early influences are still a part of your life, an important part of your life. But you didn't arrive here straight up. I was wondering if you ever felt um, that you were confused about your career or, or uh, did you ever feel lost about professional choices? 
I love this question. I would say, of course, I mean, absolutely. I think when things are challenging, that's when we feel lost. When things are not happening, maybe as quickly as we'd anticipate, we feel lost. Sometimes when we spend too much time on social media or just looking left and right and at everybody else instead of going inward, those are times of feeling lost. And I think um, the ways that I come back onto the path is, is really through a pretty strong meditation practice. And I say that only because so much of society is designed to remove us from ourselves. You know, go, you had a tough day, go have a, go have a drink, go have a smoke, you know, go like do like, go watch some Netflix, like take care of yourself. Right. But those are not the things that take care of ourselves. Those are the things that disconnect us from us further. And mm even if it might be soothing in the moment, it only prolongs the problem. And so I've been challenging myself to take moments of long meditation where I talk to myself, you know, what is it? What's upsetting you? What's making you feel happy? What feels exciting? What is it that you want for your own life? So that I know where to even go. I know where to even put my energy and I know what to let go of. And that self-conversation is really not something I've encouraged often enough. Um, but I would say that's my biggest, you know, sort of piece of advice for moments of feeling lost is to come back to the self and really identify what it is that brings joy so that we can come back onto the path. When did you know that you wanted to make music a big part of your professional life? I remember uh, being 20 years old and my father was really pushing me to go do the Obama White House internship. I was a student at Georgetown University. I was a double major. I did mathematics and I did political science. Math, just because I was good at it and I had a bunch of credits, so I said, why not? And then political science because of, you know, this notion of wanting to be a leader and giving back and learning about how global systems work. So I remember my father was really pushing me to do this White House internship. And of course, it would have been amazing. It's Obama. It was the White House. I lived in D.C. That's where Georgetown is. And yet, I just couldn't get myself to do it. I just didn't want to be in an office. I didn't want to be bossed around. I wanted to play my music. You know, I had been already playing in bands in DC. I had already been playing out in different music venues where even though I was underage, they would put X's on my hands and say, okay, you can play, just don't drink. Um, and I used to love it. And that was a huge turning point because I was like, I want to be happy. I want to use my music as the place where I invoke change. I was watching in DC how so many different activist groups were backed by music groups or how different artists would use their stage to speak to people about important issues that were happening in the city. And it just became more and more apparent to me that that was gonna be my route. And so when I graduated Georgetown, I ended up getting my first job in the music industry uh, using my math major funnily enough where they needed a digital analyst to analyze Spotify streams and YouTube views and Spotify had just come to the States. And so I got this job at Interscope Records, which was, you know, Lady Gaga and Maroon 5, biggest artists in the world signed to this label. And uh, I did that for a few years. That led me to get a job drumming actually for MIA, who, you know, is a Grammy award-winning British Sri Lankan artist. I was touring with her. And so it was just like affirmation after affirmation that music will be my life. Music is something I enjoy. Music is where I wanna be and aligning myself with artists who are using their music for, for a political message. So when I started to step into my own, that's when I started writing my own music with my own ideas. How did you get the job in drumming? And MIA is a pretty big name. How did you make that happen? Yeah, MIA was signed to Interscope Records at the time, um, about six or seven years ago. And I remember being invited to a meeting uh, just as my, you know, I was a digital marketing 
uh, analyst at the time. And so I meant I was invited to the meeting and, you know, she and I had like a little moment of like, uh, it's good to see another brown woman in the room kind of thing. Uh, and then she left. And I remember just raising my hand and being like, MIA could really use a drummer on her tour, you know, and, and I didn't mention, but I am a drummer. That was when I grew up. That was my main instrument uh, growing up. And so then one of the product marketers was like, okay, you know, you're, you're funny. You want to drum for MIA, you know, send me a video. And she, the product marketer, Diana, forwarded the video off to MIA and MIA actually responded and was like, this is sick. Like let, we should do this. And so after months and months of it being potential, it, it ended up happening. It was really cool. That must've been a pivotal moment, right, Kiran? Like uh, getting that break. Um, sometimes you just uh, have to keep trying and you never know when you attract luck. I wrote about uh, luck surface area in my book. Uh, wow. And it's about doing great things and telling lots of people. And uh, wow. sometimes one of those people will sort of make luck happen for you the way it happened for you. Wow. Can you say more about that? That's so interesting. So surface area. So doing great things and telling lots of people expands the surface area. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these, like if you look at the, the way anyone becomes quote unquote lucky, one is dumb luck where just something randomly happens and the other is the luck that you create and I don't think you became a drummer after MIA spoke to you you were already right. practicing you were already That's honing right. your craft and then you also took a shot and then that right. product market here sort of nudged it and you'll see with people who get lucky a lot quote unquote they are people who do usually a combination of both of these things it's kind of like when preparedness meets opportunity kind of thing yeah love yeah. that so you get this gig and, uh, you know, your musical career uh, takes on a whole different level altogether. But then you decided to do something really interesting, which is go study business. Tell us how that happened and uh, what was the thought process? What were your goals around that time? Well, I was doing my uh, digital analyst job at Interscope. And, and before MIA had reached out to me, I had been making moves to go and get my master's in business because I was at the label watching how my boss would be deeply influential in different meetings about who we were signing and which artists were going to you know, be putting out what kind of music. And I felt like so much of the music that was there at Interscope was really beautiful, but then a lot of it was really sexist and really problematic and really um, per perpetuating gender um, hierarchies that I really think need some critique. And I felt that if I had more influence in a business context, I would be able to come back into the industry and kind of be signing artists who are making a difference in the world, uh, who also meet a bottom line. And so I applied to Harvard to go out to get my MBA and I ended up getting in. And so when I was going to Boston, uh, that's when the MIA stuff started to really happen. And she was like, yeah, I really do want to take you on tour. And so my first semester at Harvard, I would go to class Monday through Friday and then like jump on a plane and go play in Poland, you know, and then the next weekend go play in Japan. And one week, you know, I had all weekday shows in New York City, four shows in New York City. And so I used to fly to New York, play the show the next morning, fly back to Boston, go to class the next, you know, the, that, that night, fly back to New York. So Sometimes when, uh, when we talk to the universe and the universe gives us everything, we have to be ready for that as well and, and manage our time accordingly. Do you, do you manage your time or do you manage your energy? And uh, how do, what advice do you have for people who might find themselves juggling many things that they care about, say, equally? 
I love that. I think, you know, when I was in it, I was really sharp in the sense that I was really focused on just making sure my assignments were submitted and that I was in class prepared and that I was ready for the shows. That was my only focus. So, you know, other things were no longer the priority. I wasn't really working out. I wasn't um, socializing too much. I was just really focused on these two things. And so that's what made it possible. You know, otherwise I think had I tried to incorporate too many other things unrealistically, it would have been a failure. At the same time, when the shows stopped and I kind of had this like denouement, calm down moment, I remember like eating badly and like wanting to have a drink all the time and just like not being able to manage kind of my emotional roller coaster around it. Um, maybe because of the high of the show was no longer there. And so I felt kind of like a, like a flat line. Um, and the beauty of that moment of pain was that my running really started to come out. I really started to take running as like a serious practice in my life and would run, you know, five miles on the Charles River, 10 miles on the Charles River and just like improve my own running ability, which really gave me a lot of self-worth and reason to not be eating badly and not wanting to have a drink and all these kinds of things. So I share that moment of vulnerability because I go through those phases all the time where things feel out of control and I have to reel it back in. And in the past, you know, seven, eight years, I've, I've, I've made a lot of changes in my life that had to come as, as a result of my own stress management. You know, like I don't drink at all. I've completely removed alcohol from my life and, and smoking from my life. And I I'm plant-based and, and I'm, you know, I don't eat processed foods. And so these kinds of simple choices allow for there to be less bad habits and, and more of a priority on like managing my mental health with things that are actually good for me. So, you know, the running is still there, the yoga, the meditation, surrounding myself with like wonderful people who uplift me. Um, so these are, you know, every person has to say, okay, what are my stresses and my triggers? What are the bad habits that come as a result of that? Do I want to change those bad habits? And what can I replace those bad habits with that actually affirm and soothe me? And so that's kind of the, the virtuous cycle that I've been calling into my life these past couple of years. Yeah. And running has been uh, such an important uh, part of your life, I think, both professional and personal. Before just coming to that, I want to double click on habits, both good and bad. Uh, replacing bad habits uh, isn't easy and building okay. good habits isn't easy. And you touched upon replacing one with the other. Uh, yes. Could you expand more about it? Yes, I think the biggest thing is we should be so gentle with ourselves because I have so many, so many times in, my, in the past, how many ever years, have tried to completely commit to plant-based, you know, for example, or to completely cut alcohol from my life. And then, you know, a party happens and then I'm back into it. Or um, I go out for dinner and I'm like, oh, okay, actually I'll take the whatever, whatever, you know, that's not vegan. And, and then I'm mad about it and I'm upset with myself. Um, but then a couple months go by and then I'm back into the kind of good habit. And I think that softness that I've had with myself to allow moments of coming off and then coming back on has allowed me to arrive where I am now, where it's easy to just completely commit full, full on. And now it's been a couple of years. So it's like, it's here to stay. But I think with our good habits and our bad habits, we have to be okay with the, the trying something and then maybe quote unquote falling off and then coming back on and then falling off. It's kind of like if I were to teach my kid how to ride a bike and they fell off the bike and then they're crying. They're like, I hate this bike. I'm never going to bike again. You, you would soothe them. And you'd say, it's okay. It's so normal to fall off the bike. I love you so much. Just try again when you're ready. You're going to ride this bike so easily. Just keep trying, you know? So it's, that's how I train good habits with a gentleness, with a kindness to the self and an understanding that it's a, it's a long-term process. Yeah. And how was uh, the pandemic and good and slash bad habits? 
I love that you're asking me this because I definitely feel like all my good habits are a result now of like challenges during the pandemic emotionally. I definitely felt, you know, when we first were in it, March, April, May of uh, 2020, it was just, it was a depressing time. I truly was by myself because I live in a loft in downtown LA. That's where I had to, you know, quarantine. And I think for a week or two weeks or three weeks, it was fine. But, you know, if you really remember we all thought it was like a one to two week thing. And then it would yeah. like extend and be a month. And then we, and then it would extend and be two months. And we weren't like, like before this was a normal thing. We all thought it was like a sh short term thing. Like, I don't think a yeah. lot of people had, or at least I should just speak for myself. I didn't think it was like a two year long thing when we first started, yeah, because everyone right. was just managing it. So, you know, I definitely had to look at a lot of my own it just gave us time to like look at ourselves, you know, and I had to look at like, what are some of the underlying things that maybe psychologically hold me back and have maybe hurt my emotional relationships and, and how do I work on those things and hold space for those things and improve those things. And I have found that when I am good in myself and I have peace within myself, I have so much kindness and peace to give. And when I'm angry with myself or I'm not giving to myself, that's when I'm, you know, outwardly not peaceful. So that's been some of the biggest lessons that I've learned. That's one of the biggest lessons I've learned uh, out of the pandemic. Awesome. Um, uh, now let's get to the running. Running, yes. uh, like I know Murakami runs and writes about it extensively, beautifully. Um, I know a lot of people um, have taken running as a way to balance their energy. What does running mean to you and how has that impacted your well-being and your career? Yeah, running is really a source of personal power. I, I don't, you know, it's, when you look at Ayurveda, for example, they talk about your doshas and your doshas are your kind of categorizing energies. So whether you're more uh, pitta or vata or, uh, or kapha, it's uh, whether you're more air and space energy or air and fire energy or earth and water energy. And I have no fire, you know, like I'm really like a Zen, like water, earth, child and then when you look at my western astrology it's the same I have no fire in my chart whatsoever and so when you study how to balance the kinds of things that maybe you want to cultivate more for me it's always been higher energy movement because my default is actually to just like meditate and be zen and rest you know like that's my default so running has just been this sense of cultivating my own personal fire like my own personal power my own personal energy my own personal heat and when I feel stagnant, movement is always the antidote. You know, um, after we get off this call, I'm gonna go for um, a good bike ride for the next, you know, let's say 90 minutes or so. Like movement is everything for me. Movement, 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 any kind of movement. Even if I'm between classes, you know, right now I'm at Stanford doing some music tech stuff. I'll go into the hallway and do my yoga. I have no shame that way because it's it's so important. So running is a, is a sense of personal power and, and, and it is a meditation because the longer I run for it, the more um, I start getting ideas and visions for what it is I want to do next. Yeah. And sometimes you've pushed yourself to run in extremely challenging circumstances. Uh, yes. Tell us more about that. Um, you must be talking about the 2015 London Marathon. Yeah. Uh, I... You know, it was 2015. I was running my first marathon. I showed up to the start line of London and I realized I was about to be on day one of my period. And for anybody who's watching or listening to this podcast, you know, let me tell you what you're not trying to do on the first day of your cycle. It's go and run 42 kilometers, 26 miles. 
So I, you know, like any of us who have been caught unprepared on our cycle, I started evaluating my options. I didn't have a, a tampon or a pad. I didn't really think any of those products were appropriate for running for 26 miles. It didn't seem comfortable. And so I was like, I'd rather just bleed freely and run this race than like deal with these potentially uncomfortable or unsuitable products for the moment. And so that's what I did. You know, I just ran bleeding freely and I knew it was radical. I never really heard of anybody doing that, but I also thought it was like badass. And it kind of woke me up once again, you know, this theme of power and personal power. I was like, people who bleed are amazing. Like we really are bleeding and doing incredible things all around the world every day. And not only are we not celebrated for that, we're actually shamed and told to hide it away. It's so problematic. And it's really um, preventing us from having open and honest conversations about health issues, our different experiences, our different emotional and, and hormonal um, needs and, and the effects of, of having hormones change during the cycle. And when I crossed the finish line bleeding and like having run this successful marathon, it was a huge moment for me. I felt proud of myself. I felt powerful in my body. I felt enormous love for my own body and enormous awe for, for really what women and people who bleed uh, go through. And I wrote about this experience and that blog post ended up going viral uh, all around the world, sparking this kind of global conversation of how we treat menstruation in different cultures. So that only amplified the kind of activism and gender liberation work that I was already doing um, and, and brought more focus to my music. Yeah, uh, what, what is activism? I think activism is like having this constant daily larger sense that your actions affect other people and that you have the potential to create change. And, you know, there's times when I've put myself at risk. There's times when I've driven down to the border of Tijuana and the United States and, and lived in camps, you know, volunteering and, and experienced violence. There's times when during the marathon, even the kinds of um, verbal assault that I would get online, you know, put me in a vulnerable situation. Um, I go into the prison system and teach uh, beat making and, and DJing to incarcerated youth. That's also, even though it's a completely safe environment, it's very emotionally intense because it just upsets me so much. You know, I, I leave the system and I feel so powerless and upset even though I'm doing something in my own small way in that moment it makes me feel like this is so wrong and so torturous and in the same way we look at the guillotine or whatever barbaric choices of hundreds of years ago I do know that in hundreds of years from now people will look at this time and say did you know in 2020 they used to or 2021 or whatever they used to put people in cages and that's how they used to um, punish people for 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 people's traumatic behaviors you know people commit crimes because they're going through something. So activism is, is this kind of larger awareness that we have the power to make change, a desire to make change, an ongoing practice of putting your, your desire to make the world a better place into your choices from a career standpoint. And at the core of it all, it's empathy. It's a larger sense of understanding somebody else's walk of life uh, to be able to be in service. Yeah, beautiful. Um, how does your activist self, musician self, you know, maybe the technologist, uh, perhaps the performer, the businesswoman, how do all of these multiple selves interact with each other? And uh, how do you make sense of these multiple selves? When I was a kid, my dad used to always be like, you're, 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 you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, you know, and that used to really hurt my feelings because 
it did it just didn't make me feel good it's it's creating a negative around what i'm authentically doing instead of it being like wow it's so wonderful to me how you have so many different ways of expressing yourself it's so exciting to me how you love uh, being able to exist in different communities and environments right like anything that it can be placed in an oppressive context can also be placed in like a really wonderful and beautiful context and I think it's really important for us to not police the behaviors of other people. And, and I'm still working through kind of undoing that negative rhetoric and, and rephrasing things as whatever is my authentic expression is, the, is beautiful, is what, what we need. We need everyone to just be themselves. And, you know, when I first started speaking, performing, I used to keep things separate, like, oh, Madam Gandhi is just the music. But when I'm speaking, I use my real name, Kiran Gandhi. Um, and now everything is just under one roof. You know, the Madam Gandhi project is a project of using activism um, through the music. It's using my speech and my merchandise that we sell at the shows even uh, to, to make the world a better place. And, and that's my truth. My truth is that I'm a whole, whole person. I love movement. I love thinking. I love creating. I love speaking. That's my truth. I'm not the A++ at each of these things, but I'm the A++ at the combination of these things. So that, that has to be okay. And, and it's really important for us to also model the behavior for each other of what it means to like be a multidimensional person. Yeah, I think your category of one is that you're a deep generalist who's able to you know, uh, create a unique sure. combination for yourself. And I wish children were taught to appreciate being deep generalists early on, because in many sure. cultures, uh, there's focus on hyper-specialization uh, before right. um, before getting on our uh, recording, I was watching this show called The Chair. Uh, it's an interesting Netflix show where a Korean baby, I think one year old, was asked to make a career choice, mm. like by picking something that uh, uh, she should, you know, naturally Do. gravitate towards. Right. There was money, there was a piece of uh, pen, there was a musical instrument, and there were a few other things. And basically, I think, I'm not sure, but... Uh, uh, kids at one are expected to decide their future and maybe they're nudged into that direction. And I think I wish if kids had this ability to experiment and tinker a bit more. Yeah, I really agree. And I think we have to look at what kids are authentically doing and saying because they're not conflated at that age. They're just doing what's natural. But what's interesting is when you talk about like specialization on one side and generalists on the other side, I don't resonate with either because it's true, I'm not a specialist in, in a particular thing, but I don't feel like a generalist in the sense that everything I do, it still seems to affirm the, the music, you know, and, and the message, like that is the central focus. So it's kind of like, I don't know what, you have to come up with a term now in the middle of your podcast to like come up with something in the middle because yeah, I do feel, you know, my mental health and the wellness, that's part of activism. You know, I think a lot when I'm doing my yoga, if I was in a prison cell, this practice would save my life, you know? And so when I teach, I try to teach the kids different postures and things that they can do for themselves. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like a puzzle maker. Like there's only one focused puzzle and there's different pieces to the puzzle, something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um... So tell me now that you, uh, you know, you have these multiple cells, I think you have built your category of one. Uh, tell our listeners about your creative process. Um, where do good ideas come from? And uh, for you, how have you uh, nurtured this art of creative cultivation? 
for me, I'm, everything is emotions driven. So either I feel deep emotions from my relationships, like my romantic relationships, or I feel deep emotions from my activist cause, you know? And even the other day, I found myself deeply sad, saddened by the state of incarceration in this country. And I'm doing some research mm -hmm. here at Stanford on the history of incarceration, you know, looking at this history of slavery and how we've ended up at this place and how the rules are still so corrupt, you know, these things that we call laws and the quote unquote justice system, it, it's just so dark and not enough of us are looking at that. And that's really where my songs come from, from a place of deep emotion, because I trust my emotions. I trust my consistent emotions, things that consistently make me feel something I know have the potential to make somebody else feel something and music just scores those emotions. So that's really it, you know, it's, that's my process. As soon as I start feeling something, I sing it out, I record it, and then I decide if I'm gonna develop it into a full song. Yeah, and what about practice? Now, uh, we haven't talked, uh, talked much about your live performances, which now are a sensation. I mean, you're on Thank the cover you. of uh, major magazines, that didn't happen in a day. Um, how much is performing live being a function of practice and how much of it came naturally to you? I have always been a live performer since I was a kid. You know, my parents used to always put me like into public speaking classes and into theater and, you know, live, live music performance. And I really love being on stage. I really do love connecting with people. I love looking at their eyes, into their eyes and, and really holding space and bringing people into the present moment. Um, in this moment, I've really been using my own live shows as a way to guide the audience back to themselves. So even though I am on the stage talking about my personal power and what I think and what I do, it's really more to just model what it might look like when we all step into our, our, our freedom of self-expression and to give each other permission to do so and to say, look, I'm doing it and it is scary and yet it's going well. Everyone is happy and we're having a nice time together. So you can do it too. We're all afraid of it, of us expressing ourselves and it failing. And I think that's because somewhere along the way, whether we were in kids or in school or in these societal constructions, somewhere along the way, we were ourselves and then that self was criticized. And that hurts, it hurts a lot and it makes you close up and change. So that is really what my live show is about. I have a band, we have electronics, we have lighting, we have projections, we have smoke, we have the whole thing and yet, I think the, the reason why people come back to my shows is because of the sincerity, the authenticity, and my desire to guide people back to themselves. Yeah, and you've done a phenomenal job at that. Uh, congratulations for everything. Um, Kiran, I want to talk a bit about uh, the passion economy. I'm finishing my second book. It's called uh, Passion Economy and the Side Hustle Revolution. Wow, you are part congrats. Of Thank you. <laughs> part I definitely of relate to that I definitely relate to the side hustle and passion economy that definitely resonates why does it resonate because you're in the book I just finished a chapter and I decided that you know what Kiran fits this particular uh, example perfectly so I wrote wow. it and interestingly we were recording today uh, that's so, tell so, me what that's this so sweet you'll have to send <laughs> me the the, pa the passage yeah I both resonate I definitely feel like every time I've done something I'm always doing something else on the side and I, I and I I don't, you know, I have to look at it deeply. Sometimes when I'm negative about that choice, I'm like, am I running from something? I don't want to give one thing my full attention. So I have to give two things my full attention. Is it a fair, is it a fear of failure? You know, at the very least, if I have two things, then we don't, you know, then, then not one thing is going wrong. You know, these are the, this is the, the self-fear, the self-negative rhetoric around those choices. 
But when I'm in my positive mentality, what I genuinely feel is just a desire for a multifaceted life. And for when I am doing two different things, it allows me to take things out of context. So like I'm at Stanford right now doing ambisonics and looking at three-dimensional sound. And, you know, a lot of folks put this work more into research and it kind of lives in the academic but I can't wait to take this and put it into my live performance, like my actual work where I can create a 360 experience for my next show where people are sitting in the middle of immersive sound, things like that uh, is, ama is amazing to me. And so, you know, that's definitely the side hustle economy. And then the passion, the thing with passion is that it'll never run out. So like every day I can wake up and be doing things that I'm passionate about. Whereas when I've had jobs that are jobs, I don't feel happy, you know, I feel burnt out. I feel like my bad habits come out um, and I don't want that. I wanna feel good. And so it takes a lot of bravery to go after your passion because it may not be comfortable. It may not look glorious at first. Everyone wants you to be a success from the get-go and you actually need people who support you on the journey when it's messy. I'm sure you understand that as a writer. Um, but then when, when you're winning, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, I was there at her first show and there was only six people and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, yeah, now y'all want to claim it, but that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, who, who, who have been the set of people, a group of people, um, who've been with you, uh, when you needed them the most with the highs and lows of, uh, building an alternate career, perhaps building in the passion economy. You know, if I were to answer the question, honestly, it's actually been different people at different times. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't, I, there are a few people, of course, who have been consistent. Um, but when I really think about it, I find myself keeping a bit of space from other people so that I can feel like I keep, I can keep evolving. Um, it's really, I'm in a place in my life now where I'm really trying to bring in people who we both prioritize each other's evolution, you know, and we can hold space for each other as we all grow. Um, sometimes I feel like I've outgrown a situation and that relationship no longer translates or is no longer, the connection is no longer the same because I have changed. And sometimes that can be scary. In fact, that fear alone keeps a lot of us from not evolving so that we don't leave behind our friends or our loved ones. And I'm really, you know, in the process of looking at that so yeah, there's been a lot different of different people, different times. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, that is it. Like building a tribe of mentors, it uh, takes a while to evolve. And in your yes. case, uh, both business, creativity, passion, economy, it seems like different people have uh, played an important role. Yeah. Let's discuss uh, the passion economy economics a little bit. Uh, that also, cool. yeah. Uh, most musicians, as much as I have uh, studied, I was comparing uh, the music industry with the mm -hmm. gaming industry. Oh. And even though some of the most uh, well-known people on the planet are musicians, but music mm -hmm. as an industry has evolved a lot less than gaming. Um, mm -hmm. Because the economics, the platforms, uh, the IP, um, you know, the patent uh, around it is, is, is designed a certain way. So, the economics for most musicians, I think, does not work out. Is my understanding correct? Uh, is it? Can you say the assumption one more time so I understand it? So um, 
this particular paper I read was looking at uh, the music industry and the gaming industry and saying that uh, even though, um, you know, music industry, music is such an important industry, Gen Z's play or spend loads of time uh, going through music and through gaming. But gaming is a significantly larger industry because it has used a platform-based approach where there are multiple monetization streams. Uh, the IP or patent laws aren't particularly, um, you know, binding. And then people can build off of others and incorporate them and create new kinds of games, so to speak. Music industry, on the other hand, revolves the top 00.01% of the musicians really well, but others, it's, uh, it's not super clear. And the, the data this report was pointing out was uh, Spotify earnings of many, Spotify and other platforms. Um, for many creators, evidently, um, the economics does not work out and they have to say rely on uh, other kinds of sources, jobs. merchandising, yeah. jobs, DJing, um, and some do it out of choice and some have to because the income doesn't pan out. Is that true? Like from your experience, what you've observed? It's funny because when you say that we have to, the, before you have phrased it that way, in my mind was like, no, the music industry is so abundant. We get to DJ, we get to make merch, we get to perform live, we get to connect with our audience online. Like I enjoy the multiple revenue style um, model because I, I'm a multi-dimensional person and I don't think I would find joy from doing the same thing every day, even if it was something that gave me joy. Even if you look at my own workout routine, I don't do the same thing every day. Two days ago, I ran track. Yesterday, I was boxing. Today, I'll bike. Tomorrow, I'll rock climb. Monday, I'll do yoga. You know, it's like I need diversity to keep it fresh and also to bring a, for me to feel in the moment, I have to feel like inspired by the thing and stimulated. And so newness and freshness feels good. Like when I have a DJ set, I'm hyped to prepare for it. Whereas if I did it every day, I'd probably use the same set every day and it wouldn't be as exciting, you know? Hmm. Um, so there's that. Like, I think missing in that conversation or that business analysis is just like joie de vivre, for like what brings you joy. Um, and then I think maybe there's like a feminine and masculine lens through which to look at things because I think the masculine is very resources oriented. So it's going to be like, how do I make the most amount of money given what's available to me and do that thing, right? And so it, you know, if we're looking at it just purely from that standpoint, yeah, maybe gaming um, is a more lucrative industry compared to music. The feminine, I think, looks more at like internal love, internal well-being, internal mental health. And all of us need both. Like as a, as a woman, I need to both look at resources and look at my well-being. As a man, men also need to look not only at resources, but at mental health and well-being. And we don't really talk about things like that. There's a reason why we're here to inspire each other. So through that lens, through the feminine lens, you know, I would much rather be a musician than someone working in the gaming industry any day. Uh, because of the quality of life, I enjoy it and I enjoy the freedom uh, from a masculine lens. And if it's about resources, then yeah, of course we want to go to the most lucrative industry. So, yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for, uh, you know, such a nuanced answer. Um, even I enjoy doing a multitude of things like yes. running a company, writing, creating, you know, different kinds of media, uh, community building. And, and I think each reinforces the other. I think yes. my writerly self perhaps helps my entrepreneurial self, but everything mm. is not about utility, right? We all yes. sort of do things out of pure curiosity. Yes. This particular report, yes, um, 
was about uh, just the economics of musicians. If music were an industry, let's look at it uh, as a standalone industry. Um, how, how are the economics? Are most people uh, who, who are venturing into the space as musicians, is it really hard or is it harder than usual to make uh, a living as a musician? You have to, I mean, I went to business school for that reason. You know, I definitely didn't know that I was going to come out doing my own art, but I definitely went into business school wanting to be, you know, exposed to different ways of, yeah, of, of making resources and understanding the flow of value. And of all the complicated things that I learned at Harvard, it's really the simpler things that stuck out. One, for example, is this notion of blue ocean strategy. Instead of going into the quote unquote red ocean, which is the bloodied ocean of competition where everyone's like, you know, fighting for the best restaurant on the block kind of thing and competing along the same lines. What if you go to the blue ocean where nobody exists? And so therefore not only are you creating the industry but you're creating the rules so that you can win, you know? And I definitely feel like a blue ocean kind of person. Um, another strat another thing that I learned at business school that I enjoy a lot is relationship management, um, really looking at how to understand the, uh, the viewpoint of somebody else and the needs of somebody else to be able to deliver value to them. So for example, when we're booking a festival and the festival comes back and says, hey, this is the only budget we have and that budget is not going to work for us. So we say to them, okay, here's what we can do for this budget. We're not going to just say fuck you and walk away, which is like maybe what people think you're supposed to do in order to get them to come back. We're very transparent and straightforward. Like, no, I can't bring an entire band to play a 60 minute set in that budget. But what I can do is maybe do a fireside chat Q&A for 20 minutes and three songs stripped down, you know, with a, a backing track, like instead of a full band, you know, and we're trying to create value for both parties. Um, and then I think another thing that I learned, a third example is just that value is defined in different ways. So once again, if someone comes to me and they're like, uh, you know, can you come talk at this event? Um, but, you know, we don't have any budget. Then I'll say, okay, who's in the audience? You know, or, okay, is it in a city that I've never been to? Or, okay, um, is this in a industry where I don't have much clout? You know, like, for example, we were on the FIFA soundtrack this year. You know, my song is on the FIFA Congratulations. video game soundtrack. Thank you. And the budget was good, but not amazing. You know, it's not what you would think for a video game soundtrack. It was just because they know it's a big deal. And so they can use that to your advantage. And for us, I don't have as many male identifying fans as I do female or queer or transgender non-conforming identifying fans. And FIFA is obviously a very male leaning game. So it's hugely incentive. I have a huge incentive to say yes to that opportunity to expose my music to folks who might otherwise not be drawn to it. So that's value. That's value beyond the check that FIFA is writing to me. That's value in terms of long-term fan building. So these kinds of different things allow me to be a better musician, business mind, um, but it does take a lot of work. It does take a lot of work. And has that worked out? Do you have more uh, male fans or traditional FIFA fans? Yeah, it's too? really cool. It's really so cool. I was like in the Hindi class the other day. I'm taking Hindi, you would love that. Um, yes. And I'm in that <laughs> Zoom and we have breakout rooms of the Hindi class. And this kid, after we do the exercise, he's like, I don't want to be creepy, but your song on the FIFA soundtrack is my favorite song on the soundtrack. And he's like, I really love when the ooze come in halfway through the song, you know, like something like that. And it, and it you know, it, it's, it's so awesome to have young 
men gravitate to the project, understand the message of gender liberation for all, for all people. Um, that's the goal, you know, the goal is to get the message to folks who don't think about these topics enough. Yeah. Now, today you have uh, hundreds and thousands of fans all around the world. But a concept that I love when, I, when it comes to creators is a uh, thousand true fans. So if you look mm. at your own, the way the fan base has grown, uh, do you feel that you first created the thousand people who absolutely love brand Madame Gandhi and they sort of evangelized and augmented the brand? Um, was it different? Was it uh, completely organic? Were you intentional about it? Would love your audience building I'm glad that you're reminding me of this topic because it really is the truth. It really is time and time again, we see that theory play out. I think I could be better actually about cultivating a core audience and a core group who come out consistently. I think every time I play, I develop like the person goes from like never hearing, hearing of my project to like being a super fan. I see that a lot, which makes me feel really good because that means that the project is giving them this sense of like joy and happiness that they are seeking. I, I think cultivating that group better would look like reaching out to them, sending them free merch as a thank you, you know, um, sharing their shares more often, which I do my best on social media, but giving them attention and love so you're, you're activating that fan base more often. Um, but I don't think I do it enough strategically. So it's good that you're reminding me of that. It's harder in the pandemic where people are all around the world. I think if you're local, you know, you can develop like a physical group of people in your city coming out to the shows and then you move beyond your own city to, to other cities. Um, but I think uh, in this moment, I definitely could do a better job of that. So thank you for the reminder. Um, the pandemic, how did it change Madam Gandhi, uh, Kiran Gandhi, the person? I don't think there's a big dis any distinction, but like how does the yeah. pandemic change the business, so to speak? I definitely spend, I love that you're talking about Kiran Gandhi versus Madam Gandhi because I definitely feel like Kiran myself, my authentic self is where I do all my emotional workshopping and like brain, like my like working on myself. And then when I think something is is healed and 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 grown and evolved, then I graduate it up to the Madam Gandhi project, which is like public facing, where I feel confident mm. to talk about something. I think mm. if I'm if I'm still wounded or still emotionally going through something, I don't talk about it publicly because it's not healed and it's not like in an intellectual headspace where I can offer wisdom to other people. Or if other people ask me questions, I wouldn't break down and start crying. Like I would be able to say, oh, thank you for asking. This is how I went through blah, blah, blah. I think the biggest part of the pandemic was really including emotional and mental wellness into my project holistically because I've reaped the benefits of making changes in my life. As I mentioned, getting rid of like alcohol, smoking, committing to plant-based, um, these are, you know, it sounds simple, getting rid of coffee, you know, I don't drink coffee anymore, things like that have really allowed me to make changes from a discipline and self-love standpoint from the inside out that feel really, really good and allow me to show up as the, as the queen I want to show up as. <laughs> and, the, and the business, Madam Gandhi, uh, has that yeah. grown through the pandemic? It seems like the biggest way. Yeah, no, thank you. I think the biggest way it's grown is that we've had to bring everything to virtual. So I think, you know, all the musicians, we were all like right in the beginning of the pandemic, like what you want us to perform on Instagram live? What does that even mean? You know, maybe some people were doing it, but I certainly didn't have the gear to like do it properly. And so I remember Roland had mailed me this like really cool little box where you plug it into the iPhone and then you plug in the mic and you plug in the mixer and you plug in whatever electronics. And I'm literally there with my iPhone, like, doing my show and 
that was a big change. I obviously was not doing that beforehand. I think the other thing that's been cool in terms of the business is uh, realizing that we don't have to now get on a plane to do the work that we do. So if someone has a budget that's smaller than usual, we just have to say, no, we can't go to Sweden for this small budget. Now we can say, okay, yeah, for that budget, we can do it remotely instead of getting on a plane and, and coming out net negative. So these are some of the ways the project has grown, being able to do things virtually as an additional menu item on the income list. Awesome. I have just last section of uh, this particular discussion, uh, hopefully the first of many to come, but uh, tell me about your uh, content consumption. What do you, what do you consume? Uh, what do you read? What do you ignore? Uh, what do you listen to? And what do you ignore? Uh, I love that you're asking this question. I, you know, all through my life, my dad would like get mad at me for not reading the news. He'd be like, you're an educated woman. Like, how come you don't read the news? And it's just intuitive. Like, of course, I want to know what's going on in the world. Of course, I want to be aware of what people are experiencing. Of course, it affects my own activism and what I'm talking about. At the same time, I definitely can see how a lot of news is propagandized. I can see how a lot of news um, is wanting to elicit a certain story or a certain response. And of course, now that we know even more, we can see how Facebook and Instagram just reaffirm what we already believe. So it's only going to serve up to me things that it thinks that I already align with. So that's already problematic. You know, it's better for us to be reading the opposite, the quote unquote opposite side to understand other people's perspective. So to the, to the first answer to your question is that I don't actually spend too much time reading the news. I organically let people share things with me that they think would resonate or, you know, seeing things organically on social media through the people who I follow and respect. The second thing that I do consume is uh, I, I really uh, listen to a lot of Deepak Chopra meditations almost daily. I start my day playing them, you know, because he's talking about wonderful things. He's talking with Alicia Keys. He's talking with Oprah. He's talking with Michelle Obama, you know, people who I really respect about how to be your better self. And I will always align with that, you know, and I can tell it's good for me. It doesn't feel like a cult. It doesn't feel like it's, um, you know, uh, like like strange or esoteric, it feels very um, pure. So really looking at meditation is a huge thing for me. Um, I read a lot on Ayurveda. I read a lot on um, the, the prison industrial complex, I do. I look at, um, at where we've, why it is that we've arrived at the system that we have today and how can we dismantle it. I read a lot about the music industry and I pay attention to other artists who I admire and how they're running their business. You know, Justin Bieber is my favorite. I really love him so much. And I love watching the way that the team behind him is doing merchandise, is doing shows, is doing live experiences, is doing re music releases. Um, and I definitely draw a lot of inspiration from that business model. Um, and, and honestly, I spent a lot of time just listening to myself, journaling, tapping in, because I want to be a con contributor to culture, not just a consumer of culture. Yeah, I love that you said that. Cultural contribution. Companies, universities, they shouldn't hire for cultural fit. I think cultural hmm. contribution is a much I better thing. Wow. Justin Bieber has 180 million Twitter followers, I think. I was uh, one day thinking that maybe people like him are a country. Maybe one mm, day, wow. Madam Gandhi will be a country. Like that's <laughs> wild. That's crazy. That's a really right? good point. Yeah, that's really crazy. That's that's wild. Yeah. yeah, wow. Have you changed your mind about anything in the past few years? And if yes, what does the process of changing your mind look like? Um, 
I can share a vulnerable one. I think my own queerness like has a lot of change in the past couple of years. I think, you know, choosing to to be with women has been definitely part of my own like a, a source of safety because I think like f- feminine love is just so soothing and warm and safe. And I think growing up, a lot of masculine aggression made me feel like I don't want to participate in that. And, and that also I had to step into my own masculinity um, in order to protect myself, which may not be authentic to who I really am. And so I think the more I do a lot of healing work on the inside, the more I actually feel more open to the masculine and actually really wanting that and desiring that um, so that I don't have to hold that masculine space I want him to hold it you know I want to be taken care of and loved and nurtured and I want to be able to provide that nurturing um, and step into my own motherhood at some point so that's a pretty big one that I do feel and I think that's always why I've used the word queer to identify because I find queerness to be more of a source of radical personal gender liberation in the sense that my sexuality is fluid and open and and evolving and to that very extent you know, almost like a self-prediction, that's where I am right now, really feeling like I'm on the other side of the spectrum of my own queerness. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much, Kiran. Is there anything that I should have asked you, but I haven't, or any point that you want to leave our audience with? Oh, I love this question. Um, you know, stay in touch on, on, on Instagram, on Madam Gandhi. And of course, you know, we have shows coming up. I have a new project coming out in, in the top of 2022. It's my third album called Vibrations. Um, that music is very, you know, uplifting and, and, and loving and percussive and electronic. And, and really just so much love with Krish. Thank you for having me. This is this podcast has been a couple of years in the making. So I'm glad we finally got to do it. And, and congrats on your second book. Can't wait to read it. Thank you, Kiran. You built your category of one and uh, I for one draw so much inspiration for you. All the very best uh, for the next album. And, you know, we on Network Capital, we're going to do everything we can to, to get it to our community. I'm sure they'll love it. Thank you so much.